0: O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether, and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com.
1: In today's podcast, trail cameras are the topic, specifically summer strategies on public land. It seems like much of the info I hear on summer trail cam strategies focuses around putting them in high-visibility areas Say, along field edges, fence rows, next to mineral licks or salt blocks. Well, what if you don't have access to agriculture? What if minerals or other feed is illegal on the land that you hunt? What if you're afraid of theft in high traffic areas? Well, today I'm going to outline some alternative strategies that I'll be employing throughout the summer to try and inventory several different pieces of public across multiple states to try and get a good preparation for the upcoming season. So hopefully a little bit of a different spin than the normal summer trail camera strategy discussions. And before we dive in, I have a quick message about Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge is a service which gives you deer movement prediction based on machine learning. What does that mean and how does it work? Well, in a nutshell, years worth of data, primarily from collared deer studies across the country, is fed into what's called a neural network. Essentially, it's computers that analyze the data and look for patterns. Those patterns might be increased or decreased movement based on rain, humidity, wind speed, temperatures, or a variety of other factors. Those factors might impact deer differently based on what region of the country it's taken from. And the computers don't really care why deer move more or less on certain conditions. They just recognize what happens and then apply those patterns to future outcomes for general deer movement. Spartan Forge is currently web-based, but an application is currently in the works, will be beta tested shortly, and likely will be released close to the hunting season. Use the code DIY for a discount on a Spartan Forge membership. So I guess one important thing to cover here is, you know, really what is the importance of summer trail cameras, especially if a lot of what we hear on, I guess, a day-to-day basis, or if you're reading articles, listening to podcasts, et cetera, a lot of what you see with regards to summer trail cameras is more about inventory. It's less about putting cameras up where you're intent on hunting, less about trying to gather Intel to help uh, kill a you know specific deer or figure out what's going to be your best you know scrape spot, figure out when these places are starting to heat up It's more about just you know seeing what deer are around really and I think that perhaps two deterrents that a lot of people have when it comes to putting out cameras in the summer on public land, especially that's kind of what I'm going to focus on here because you know, like I said, there is a lot of content that kind of covers the, the private land parcels that covers setting them up in agriculture rich areas, setting them up over, you know, feed blocks or mineral sites, salt blocks, that type of thing. And if you don't have all that stuff, it might seem like, well, you know, what's the point, especially when you take into context that what these deer are doing throughout the summer months might not really pertain too much to what they're doing in the fall, especially if you've got an opener that's let's say mid September or even October 1st, it it might just seem like it's kind of a a waste of time. And when you have the influx of pressure coming in at the start of the season too, you know, it might seem like you're chasing your tail a little bit, trying to get inventory of a specific property when you know that it's kind of all going to quote unquote go out the window once the season starts. But I'd make an argument that that's not necessarily always going to be the case. Especially if you're on a larger piece of public, it might just mean that those deer shift when they become hard horned, but you still have enough land that if you have your cameras set in an appropriate, you know, set of spaces, you can kind of figure out for one thing where they're moving to. And number two, if you find a deer that say is in a certain location, well, maybe he shifts a mile over, maybe he shifts two miles over once it gets closer to the season. Well, you might still have an opportunity to pick that deer up on the same property which could even be a benefit compared to private land where you oftentimes hear of guys, you know, they're getting pictures of deer all summer long. And then once the season starts, the deer are gone or vice versa. You might have a smaller property where you just don't get pictures at all in the summer months, June, July, August. Uh, But then, you know, late August, early September, all of a sudden those deer have started to shift over into their fall ranges. And all of a sudden you got deer that are showing up. So in public, if you've got you know, let's say 5,000 acres, even 2,000 acres, or you got something even bigger, you know, 10, 15, 20, there's, there's places that are pretty enormous depending on what state you're in. If you've got either that type of a situation, or let's say you got not necessarily big blocks of public land, but you got smaller ones just sort of scattered throughout an area where you got, you know, several score miles and there might be, you know, three, four or five pieces of public that are a couple hundred acres a piece. If you have even just a smaller amount of cameras in those areas, you might be able to, number one, learn enough during the summer months that even if the deer do shift, you still know that you're in the, you know, general vicinity, you're in the right ballpark. I have heard, uh, in places like the Dakotas where you have just smaller pockets of public when deer shift to go to their fall range, they can go quite far, like, you know, several miles. I've, I've even, uh, I was talking to a guy just a few weeks ago, he was saying that, uh, he's seen deer move up to, you know, six, seven miles between when they're hanging out in velvet and where they end up doing their fall range activity. So that's definitely uh, quite a distance. So you have to keep that in consideration, but for the most part, the shift isn't quite that extreme. And if you get a deer that's showing up, or let's say you got a bachelor group of bucks in, you know, July and in into August, they're getting pretty regularly. If they stop showing up, then they might still be on that same property, especially if it's quite large. And if that's the case, then that intel that you've gathered over the summer months definitely isn't wasted. Now, on the flip side of that, let's say you got a piece of land that's, you know, 200 acres. You know, I would say that's, it's not tiny, but it's also not very large in the context of what most public land is. If you have something like that and you get a bachelor group of bucks that's showing up and there's not a lot of fall cover, like let's say you got great CRP and grasses and weeds and brush and just a lot of foliage that gives the deer a lot of summer food and a lot of summer cover. But then you kind of fast forward to what the, what is that stuff going to look like come October? If all that grass is going to start to, you know, turn brown and start to lay down and you're going to lose a lot of that cover. Well, you might be able to look at a property like that and say, you know, if there's not something that's close by that has more of that fall cover, then it might not be worth my time. I've got bigger pieces in Wisconsin, for example, that has a little bit of everything. They have areas where you have, you know, clear cuts, logging, and you're getting a lot of good summer cover, a lot of good summer food. And there's even some areas where you got nearby crops, soybean fields, corn fields, uh, you name it, or even out in the Dakotas would be kind of a, a similar story. But I also know that on those same properties, both from just looking at the maps and just historical evidence, that those deer are going to shift into areas that are on that same piece of ground. Well, then I know for sure that there's going to be a big advantage of me putting those cameras out in the summer months, just to kind of see what's around. The trick is knowing where they're going to show up in the fall months, and then also knowing kind of where to put those cameras in the summer months to be able to get as much intel as you could. One other advantage I think you get with some of these really big properties, if there's not a lot of agriculture around, is that you're going to be less impacted by things like crop rotation, right? In farm country, that's a big consideration of knowing where those deer are going to show up in any given year. If it's corn one year, beans the next year. In bigger woods, the cover and also the food is going to be a little bit more consistent year to year. So, especially if you can figure out a pattern one year, well there's a good chance you can kind of leverage that knowledge the next year and even you know tweak it a little bit to try and improve more and more. Uh, but certainly I think from that perspective there's definitely some advantages. I mean, think back to the podcast that I did with Todd Havel and how he mentioned that year after year, especially the mature box, it was almost like the more mature they got, it seemed like in his observations, they became more and more consistent in their year after year patterns. And so, yeah, definitely you got a great opportunity here. So we've covered the why. Now let's talk a little bit about kind of the best places to put cameras and from what I see in hunting some of these, I guess I'll talk about bigger woods areas. I'll also talk about some of the hill country areas, um, hill country specifically, because a lot of the turkey hunting I do in late May is in hillier country and the the forest is really dense. There's some ag in certain areas, but then also other areas where it's literally just, you know, big hills and bluffs and not really a whole bunch in terms of, more wide open spaces that you might traditionally think about putting a a camera in the summertime. And one of the things that really stands out to me this time of year being, you know, basically beginning of June, late May, if you go out and walk in the woods, the deer just seem to be really visible. Uh, A lot of times, mostly does, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that they've, you know, just recently had their fawns, but spend enough time walking around and you'll definitely see quite a few bucks in the woods as well. And so that can be a really good starting point. To start looking for exactly where you're going to be able to place those cameras. I would say that probably one of my favorite places uh, to put cameras. And it's, it's evolved a little bit over time. But it seems like when I put them over more of your primary community scrape type areas. It just seems like I always have really good results. With getting not only just deer pictures in general. But a lot of different deer that show up on those particular locations. Whereas if I put them in more funnel type locations, I might only be getting you know certain deer that are going through there. The pictures might be a little bit more inconsistent. And so if I'm able to find one of those scraping type areas that's already in an area that you know has good summer deer activity that you might have learned, like I mentioned before, by just going out and walking in the woods, looking for fresh tracks after a rainstorm, um, deer that you jump while you're out turkey hunting, Those two things, being in the good spot and also being able to find one of those scrapes is is really, I think, a high probability strategy. They definitely do look a little bit different this time of year than they do, obviously, in the fall. And that can be an issue if you don't already have pre-existing primary or community scrape locations picked out to be able to go into and hang cameras on. Because they won't be pawing up the dirt this time of year, but they'll still be communicating with the licking branches And it can be pretty easy to walk right past one of those scrapes this time of year because you got green foliage up, the dirt isn't as kicked around, but a dead giveaway is going to be those licking branches. So keep your eyes peeled. And if you're in an area where it seems like it would make sense for there to be a primary scrape, just keep your eyes peeled. And if you see an area where it's like, man, is that a scrape or is it not? Look for the licking branches and that'll be your dead giveaway. The more worn and tattered those things are, the better. And I guess on this topic too, that podcast with Troy Pottinger, I mean, that's basically what he does during the summer months to get inventory is he puts those cameras on scrapes, either real ones, I shouldn't say real ones, natural ones, or mock scrapes that he's actually put out there himself. So if you haven't already listened to that podcast, definitely go ahead and do that because Troy's been doing this for a really long time. He's had a lot of great results And he gets a lot of his inventory in the summer months so that by the time the actual season rolls around, he's in a really good position. And some of what I've been, I guess, tweaking on my own personal setups is based on my discussions with him and some of the ways that I look at scrapes and what types of licking branches specifically might be better in certain areas than others or more preferred tree types. Those are things that I picked up from Troy as well. But outside of scrapes, what other areas might be good? Well, areas where you're just going to generally see a lot of deer activity throughout the summer are on some of those access trails, logging roads, places where it's easier for deer to walk. And you can just go down any sort of logging road and, and public lands that have a lot of deer activity and have a good deer population, and you're almost guaranteed to find tracks just walking right up and down those logging roads. And so that's definitely a place you can look and you can also figure out just by the size of the tracks that are in those logging roads what you might be dealing with in terms of potential, you know, big deer. If you've got really big tracks, then that probably indicates that you have big deer using the area and it might be worth putting a camera in one of those areas. Now the risk of course of putting those cameras right on top of those logging roads is that you're going to have an increased risk of theft. So usually I don't like to put cameras right on those travel areas. I like to have them, you know, preferably backed off onto some kind of a a little pinch point or a little bit closer to where deer might be bedding during the summer, which can be a little bit harder to pinpoint because they, it seems like they can bed all over the place when you have foliage and and thick cover all, literally everywhere. You have maximum cover, more cover during the summer months than any other time of the year. Whereas, you know, wintertime, the the bedding gets a little bit more confined. And while even certain deer might have bedding areas that they'll use throughout the entire season, it seems like during the summer months, you might find a bachelor group of bucks just bedding in, you know, some open CRP that they might not be bedding in later in the season. That or some type of scrape, you know, something that's a little bit off of that main logging road that everybody's going to be walking right down. It doesn't seem like you get a ton of other hunters generally walking through areas during the summer months. It's more like people walking their dogs or just going out for a hike is just kind of what I generally see. If you do feel comfortable enough to be able to put a camera on an area like that, then just expect that a lot of those pictures you're going to get are going to be nocturnal pictures. But also you could be able to get even a little bit of advantage of being able to tell who might be walking down those areas. Last year, for example, in that new area I was trying to figure out, I had put, I think, three cameras that were just in areas where I felt like they were hidden well enough and they were elevated high enough that the risk of theft was low and it was just something that I was willing to put up the <clears throat> with the risk for. But I put these things over access trails. And what that allowed me to do was basically figure out how many people are coming back here what time of day are they coming back? Are they hunting during the weeks? Are they weekend warriors? Um, you know, is it groups of two or three guys? Is it just one guy? Are they perpetually hunting the same stuff over and over again? Or does it seem like it's very sporadic? That's all very helpful bits of information that you can get by putting the cameras on access trails, even though, you know, kind of the primary focus here, especially during the summer months, is more of like an inventory type thing. If you continue to leave those things out in the field and uh, September, say for instance, if you got a September opener, you can get that extra bit of intel there as well. Food sources would be another good potential place to put them. The only issue I have with trying to put cameras on food sources in the summer, in this type of a, an example, with the public land, with like less ag, is it's really tough to pinpoint exactly where that food's going to be. There's just, you know, there's food everywhere. Everything's green. And so being able to pinpoint an exact location. Like if you had a, a bait pile or a mineral block, that's one thing. Uh, even being able to put something on the edge of a field where, you know, deer are going to walk up and down that field edge. Really the closest equivalent that I've been able to find is if you have like a, an open area, that's like a clear cut and you have enough regrowth that the deer are feeding on that. There's probably going to be, you know, some type of a logging road likely around the edge of that. And that might be your equivalent of like a field edge. Uh, but it's, one of those things, again, where you're putting yourself in a scenario where other guys might be walking that during the summer and you put yourself at a little bit higher risk uh, for having trail camera theft. So I would say it's definitely, it could be a good option, but expect nighttime photos. Well, not even that, you still get quite a few daylight photos typically throughout, especially the earlier summer months. Uh, So that probably wouldn't be the biggest concern, but, but yeah, it's just one of those things you have to weigh. What's going to be, you know, the advantage of that type of a spot versus what are the potential drawbacks And if you had an area that was a little bit further back from one of those actual food sources that might be preferable, you do seem to generally not have as many issues with false triggers on some of those more open areas as compared to when you have them in the woods themselves. Other places that I would definitely say are good for putting cameras during the summer months would be either on very discreet water sources. And also if you have some type of a really tight pinch point or funnel. And it might not be the exact same funnel that you have during like the rut, but if you're able to find, again, an area where you know that deer are feeding because there's food available in that area and you have kind of an idea of where you're seeing fresh tracks, maybe where you've jumped or seen deer just walking around as you're putting time in the woods, then being able to find pinch points specifically within that general travel area can be a good place to look. and. Combine that with water, too, if you have some type of a a ditch or a little creek that deer are crossing in a certain location, that, again, gives you a good place to go and check to look for some of those fresher tracks and depressions in the mud where it starts to get a little bit softer ground. The edge of a pond or lake or even, like, a river could all be good. Like, for example, when we go out to North Dakota, there's a lot of potential good pinpoint-type locations and good water locations where you have sometimes these agricultural areas, and you might have, you know, little potholes of water that I imagine at some point probably made their way into the ground from some of the farmers, just trying to get those concentrated water sources for maybe some of their animals. But you definitely go into those types of spots and you can see deer tracks all around them. So those can be good places to hang a camera. Again, you know, high visibility area. So you're a little bit higher risk there for theft if it's a high human use area as well. Uh, But even like some of those creeks and, and drainages, the more, especially if you got like steep banks or something that can really kind of corral that deer movement. Uh, Lake edge would be another example, something that's a little bit bigger than a pond, a little bit harder to pinpoint, but still creates an edge in and of itself because the deer not as likely to actually go swim across that lake as opposed to just sort of traveling the edges. Same is somewhat true of, you know, creeks and rivers. If you can, especially if you have a steep bank, just kind of walk the edges and you can find where some of those cut into the bank locations are. Uh, to be able to go cross, you can find fresh tracks, usually in those types of areas, and they can be a good spot to put a camera. Now, what I do tend to see is that it's not, you don't get quite the full experience of you know, being able to see oftentimes all of the deer that are using an area like you would, and say like a community scrape type of an area, when you have just these really discrete funnels or, well, I guess water sources probably a step above just a straight up funnel, but I'll give you an example. In Wisconsin last year, I I ran a trail camera in an area that was somewhat new, and this was hilly country. So it was, you know, steep bluffs, cuts. Um, There were some scrapes in that area. Uh, I did put a camera on one of them. Unfortunately, the camera did not work, did not uh, get the pictures I was hoping for, but I had other cameras in like a bluff gap. You know, bluff gap would be something that's, you have a vertical face of rock and up above that you get the flat where the deer, you know, traveling and using that area up top. And then down below, you have basically that bluff, and then it tapers down into just a steep hillside that eventually makes us down to a creek bottom. And in that bluff gap, there's just a massive heavy worn into the dirt trail that I went and put a camera over. And I would get pictures on that camera just about daily throughout the summer months. But it was a lot of does and fawns. But throughout that span, I did have, you know, a few discrete time points where I'd have buck pictures on there. Uh, I think the biggest one I happened to see on this particular camera was probably like a, you know, like a two and a half year old eight pointer, but just being able to look at that Intel off of that particular location, let me know, okay, well, there's a lot of, a lot of deer in general in this area, high deer numbers, which you could tell just by looking at the sign in the area. But then also this is kind of what I, you know, I know that this deer is in the area and maybe he won't be exactly in this location, you know, come mid September, but he's here now. And if you had across that same location, multiple different cameras in similar type of areas, then you're just kind of increasing your odds that you're able to get more and more examples of deer that are living in that area. But if you just have one, it might not be giving you the full picture that you'd be hoping for. I'll give you another example. When I was turkey hunting down in southeastern Minnesota this spring, after I shot my bird, we (laughs) tried to get down off of this big bluff in a different way that we got up because getting up of it was a pain. And we're hoping it might be a little bit easier to go kind of drop down the backside of the bluff and make a big loop around this, this huge point, and then work through a a drainage and then back up another bluff to get back to our truck. And there was deer beds all over the place on this hillside. It's very thick. It had a lot of buckthorn, so good cover. And we worked our way down around the point. And when we got into that drainage area, what you could basically find was, it was this big flat open um, area but where the creek itself was, was very steep. It was just a a big cut right into the ground and it was steep. I mean, you're talking, you know, a ditch that's essentially, you know, 10, 15 feet deep and not that much wider. So you pretty much had to go vertical down and then, you know, five feet across at the bottom and then almost vertical back up. But if you kind of followed along that path, there was two things that we found. Number one was we found an area where there was a lot of like rushes and, and sort of cane in this bottom area. And we almost passed it at first, but there was a big community style scrape in that area. And the only reason we ever really actually saw it was because we found a couple of morels. And as we were picking those morels, I was like, man, this this looks kind of like a scrape. I look up and sure enough, there's a, a big, uh, you know, hanging licking branch. that looks like it's had several years worth of use definitely a great area. We kind of looked around that a little bit more, found a couple of beds in that low area around those reeds and canes and things like that. And it wasn't that far from the ditch. And you looked around and you could see like, okay, this point kind of drops down this direction. This point kind of drops down this direction. It was just a textbook example of what could be a great thermal hub in that type of a habitat. And so that would be a great spot to be able to put a camera. There's no cell service at all in this location, Once you get into the valleys, it seems like you have zero cell service, and sometimes when you're up on top, you got like maybe one bar. That's just kind of the way it was down there. And that means the cell cameras are a no go in that area, but putting normal cameras would be fine. The one thing that would make that more efficient, though, being able to put cameras in those bottom areas and actually being able to check them efficiently, would be if you had bottom access. Right in this location, we had top access, we would have had to basically drop down into there to be able to check and then go back up, which isn't the end of the world, but for being able to minimize scent, it'd be much more preferable to be able to park at the bottom, walk up that creek drainage a ways, get to that camera, check it, and then get back out. There was also areas as we continued to walk along that sort of drainage ditch where there were just ultra obvious deer trails crossing in certain locations because it couldn't just cross anywhere, right? You had to have somewhat of either a little bit more gradual slope to get down and up, or there just had to be some spot where it almost seemed like in in certain locations, the deer just decided one day, like, okay, we're going to cross here and they just forged their way across down and up. And then they cross, you know, the same location because it doesn't look that, uh, that shallow, it looks just as steep as anywhere else, but that's where the trail is. And the only way that we could find that was ultimately just by walking up and down the edge of that ditch. Uh, but when you find the trails, they're pretty obvious. So, in that type of a scenario, if I had multiple cameras, maybe I'd put one at the scrape location and also one at some of those ditches. I mean, this is big land, so you could put out, you know, two, three cameras at a certain drainage to be able to monitor a different number of those types of crossings in that ditch. Uh, but if I only was able to put one camera, I'd probably put it over the scrape just because that would, I feel like, maximize my opportunity that I'm getting a better selection of the deer that are in the area, being able to hit that versus like I had mentioned before, some of those ditch crossings or or bluff gaps or other funnel types, you might just be getting a smaller subset. Now, the unfortunate thing about that Minnesota spot is I'm not going to be able to put any cameras there anyway, because that area, like many of the places that I hunt in Minnesota, you're actually not allowed to leave trail cameras out in the woods on public land. You can technically put them out in some places, but not after 24 hours or not overnight. Uh, little rules like that just really don't make it practical to actually use trail cameras, kind of you know take away the, the whole point of having them out in the woods if you can't leave them out overnight. But the example prior in that bluff gap spot was a Wisconsin example. And a lot of the other things I've talked about in terms of like clear cuts or some of these scrapes and flatter type areas, those are very typical of what i see in Wisconsin now as well. So that gives you kind of an idea of how I'm going to spread those cameras out in terms of like size and, and just how densely I'm gonna be putting trail cameras in some of these areas, it just really depends, right? Like if it was a, a bluff or hill country type area, you know, maybe I'm I'm taking a page out of, out of Troy Pottinger's book and maybe, you know, ev- out of every drainage, I've got one really good scrape location. And if it's, you know, five or six drainage area, maybe I start with, you know, five or six cameras to cover those and then just kind of add to it as as you would see fit but that might give a decent enough opportunity that you're seeing a lot of what that area has to offer now get into more of that flatter big woods country and then it becomes a little bit less less easy to to determine the number of cameras because you might be able to walk through an area like that there was some that we scouted this spring and we'd cover you know 10 plus miles in a day and maybe find one good scrape location. There were other areas where you'd walk basically that same 10 plus miles, and you might find 50, 60, 100 scrapes. And then you have to really be able to tell, you know, which are the ones that are going to be more of that community style use. And I definitely don't feel like I'm an expert at that yet, but I certainly have seemed to get a lot better. Uh, some of the cameras, especially that I was you know, monitoring last year, were on areas that I would consider to be, community style scrapes. And you could definitely tell that you were getting just a variety of deer that would hit those. They weren't scrapes that were on logging roads. They weren't scrapes that were on the edges of clear cuts or anything like that. They're typically, you know, tucked back into areas that were thick. They had a lot of bedding all around them. And if I had to describe finding one in almost every scenario, it's, it's almost like you're, you're following along this, this dense, you know, deer trail cutting through an area, and you got lots of bedding around you, and all of a sudden you just come upon this, you know, magical looking scrape, and and maybe then you find another one, another one. Maybe there's three, four scrapes in a tight little area. Maybe it's one bigger scrape, uh, but there's a lot of deer sign that all of these scrapes have, you know, great licking branch with heavy use, and it just starts to make sense when you sit there and you look around, and you think about how do the thermals play into this area, where are the bedding locations in and around this area they're the type of spots where you wouldn't want to, you'd feel guilty kind of going in and checking those things over and over again, simply because you just don't want to ruin it almost. So in some of those areas, they're definitely more ideal from my perspective to be, you know, putting the cell camera there if I can, just so that I don't have to go back in there and disturb those areas. And I can just, you know, set it once in the summer and then just sort of monitor as the, the summer goes on. Another huge advantage there with the the cell cameras would be if you do have a windy day, you're gonna start getting your phone blown up with pictures. You can go into the settings and just adjust it downward to, to where maybe you're having you know a two hour gap between triggers just to make sure you're not gonna fill up that card in like one day of windy photos. That's been absolutely huge having that ability uh, versus just a non-cell camera where even if you're gonna use it like a regular camera, just not having to go out there and drive three hours and pick up a camera that's been sitting out there all day. And then you find that a week after you set the camera, there was a branch that waved a lot more than you had expected it to and filled up your card. So back to that original question in terms of how densely would I put cameras, some of it's going to depend, I believe on just what did that area look like when I've historically hunted it? What did it look like when I scouted it? If it's an area that let's say for example, the public is five miles long, let's say it's a five mile by five mile block. And in this five by five mile block, there's a lot of diversity. There might be swamps in certain areas, creeks, beaver ponds, clear cut areas. It's not just monotonous hardwoods. Cause if it was, then I probably wouldn't be really that interested in hunting it anyway, <clears throat> but hopefully through the scouting or, or, you know, just historical data that I have, I've got, let's say three to five really good primary scrape locations. And, Those might be the ones where I just, if I got that number of cameras and they're spread out enough, those are the ones I'm going to go in and uh, put those cameras on. But if I have more to be able to deploy, and I know historically that it's a pretty good area, like the, the place that I killed my buck at last year is a good example of this. I'll probably be increasing the number of cameras slightly at that location, but I'm going to be spreading them out more than I had in the past. Last year, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, what I had done was just sort of cluster these cameras in an area that had a lot of really hot rut sign. And I learned a lot about how the deer used that particular area, but I was also very blind to how the deer were using, you know, the trail a mile, mile and a half down, Uh, because some of those same deer were being able to hit both of those certain areas. And once we got outside of where that cluster of cameras was, we're really just having to rely on, you know, at this, point in time in the fall, we were relying on the other sign that we we're seeing, uh, where we'd see big tracks show up, that sort of thing. And some of the cameras that we had put out in the summer months in that area, they were mostly over some of those areas that were more akin to being like pinch points or places where you had a really obvious trail next to heavy cover. And we'd put a camera there. Another place we had a camera out there was, you know, at a Creek crossing, that just when we scouted in the spring had ultra heavy worn trails. And that one did get a lot of summer pictures. Uh, But again, it was, it was giving us a, on a big chunk of land like this, it was giving us a subset of the deer that were in that area, but it definitely wasn't giving us all the deer that were in that area. But it was a a good spot that ended up cooling off like the first week of September. So uh, in a pretty optimal summer location, the fact that it was good for inventory, we could get in there with a canoe uh, or a small boat, to be able to track that camera and be not too obtrusive. But we also knew that we would of course have to shift once the fall pattern started to emerge. So after having scouted this area as an example, a little bit more this spring, you know, we've sort of determined that out of, you know, again, that hypothetical five by five mile chunk, there's really like a two mile long strip. That's, I don't know, maybe half a mile wide that seemed to be where a large cluster of where we were seeing a big historical sign from the prior season where that was all sort of located. So throughout that strip that's, you know, say two miles long, we'd probably be putting cameras on some of those more discreet hidden scrape locations, you know, and probably could put between somewhere in the neighborhood of I'd say five cameras, I'd feel pretty comfortable with being able to get a decent inventory based off of that. And then, if I'm able to increase that a little bit, then that just helps. I'll probably end up putting more out there just because I have more cameras to be able to put out there. And for especially those ones that are more secure, I'm going to lean towards using cell in those locations just so I don't have to get there, get in there and check them. Uh, but there's going to be other locations where it just makes sense to go and put a couple regular ones on some of those areas that, again, might be higher visibility, maybe a little bit higher risk of theft, but they're also nice open areas that I can check easy. And my human scent on some of those logging road areas, aren't going to be that big of a concern to the deer because they're used to people walking on those. So as long as I can keep them hidden enough and secure enough, then I'll get an idea for number one, who's using those areas. Is it just dog walkers or is there actually people out there scouting in the summer? And number two, get a decent idea of what deer are using that area. So it's a mixture of both, but definitely more scrape heavy uh, for how I'll be using these cameras in the fall. And for areas that are more, I guess, hilly, because there are a few in Wisconsin as well, that I'll be dropping a couple of cameras just to kind of monitor throughout the summer as well and just see what's out there again. It'll be very similar to that example that I talked about in the uh, Minnesota hunt for, for turkeys where we found that area that had really good bottom access and the ability to be able to put cameras in some of those thermal hub type scrape locations as well as the uh, the ditch crossings. We have a couple of spots like that that we found that we can get into on the lower side of these hills from river access or creek access and then just be able to kind of drop in and check some of these normal cameras that aren't going to be able to have cell service anyway and be fairly unobtrusive as we go in and check those. So that's really kind of the, the combination of the strategy there. Um, I'm not sure. I probably won't be able to have time, I don't think, to make a trip out to North Dakota to, to drop a couple cameras there. But that's also something that I've, you know, I've wanted to do and just haven't had the opportunity to do yet. And I think by picking some of those, you know, key locations and and out there, there's not as much human pressure in certain areas. So being able to put a camera on like, you know, a couple, like a scrape line, basically on the edge of, you know, a wheat field or something. Like if, if you see some of the videos that we had from last September, there were some of those areas that were just lit up, you know, beginning of September, their first week and a lot of deer traffic using them. So those types of locations would be pretty prime, uh, as well as the, the ditch crossings where you get across some of those river bottom areas or, uh, some of those ponds that might be left over from, you know, cattle farmers that were there a long time ago. And now it's public land. Uh, those would be good areas to be able to drop a camera as well and just kind of monitor again, uh, what deer are using that area. The last thing I would touch on is just some specific trail camera hanging uh, strategies and and setup strategies, because there's definitely a lot of things you can do wrong that I've learned the hard way from experience. One is just being able to put your camera in a spot where you're not going to get totally blown up with false triggers. It's something that's just pretty tough to avoid when you're putting cameras in wooded timbered areas as opposed to field edges. But some things that can help are number one, if you're able to raise that camera up a little bit and be able to angle it down, especially if you have an area that's a little bit more open, like you have maybe, or the canopy is thicker, it's a little bit more mature hardwoods, but you got a ditch crossing there. And so there's not a whole lot of like weeds or ferns or just more kind of leaf litter on the ground. Then that's going to be a little bit safer of a spot to be able to hang that camera. A similar thing with scrapes. If you can get up a little bit and angle down at that scrape, you got a pinpoint spot that you're looking at. So you're not trying to reach out, you know, 20, 30 yards to be able to get pictures of deer a long ways off. You can use that to your advantage. Uh, But you really got to make sure that some of those smaller branches around the cameras that you're placing, I mean, just take your hand and flex them and and just see, just shake them around and see how far they can bend. Because what I've noticed is I might have a camera that I put and it seems like there's no no branch within, you know, two, three feet of the, the line of sight of the camera. And then sure enough, once you get a windy day and those branches just flex over and the leaves get in front of the sensor and you get a bunch of false triggers. So the more open you can get that camera, certainly the better from a false trigger perspective, but it also just means again, that your camera's a little bit more visible. It's, it's tough to have a win-win if you do put the cameras at ground level, Again, I feel like they're a little bit easier to spot using paracord as opposed to a strap is going to help that camera uh, remain more undetected. Other things that can make a difference for how you're going to be hanging those trail cameras is think about the direction of the deer travel. A common mistake would be putting cameras so that they're looking right down the trail. Those sensors work best when you have sort of left to right movement going across the, the center horizon line of that uh, sensor. And so if you're able to to put a camera on a trail, if you're having deer go from left to right or right to left, right through kind of the middle of where that camera would be, that would be our ideal case scenario. Um, or if you're, if you got that camera at a scrape location, trying to put it in such a way that the trail leading up to the scrape is coming in from the left or it's coming in from the right, as opposed to coming up from the bottom or coming up from the top of the, the screen. Uh, those are going to help out with just kind of how the cameras are designed to work in general. Also ants can be a big problem during the summer months putting the cameras out and they can pretty much destroy a camera and Exodus has a video on this on their YouTube channel that I got this tip from uh, but I'll pass it on to you guys so uh, make sure to go ahead and check out that Exodus YouTube channel because they have not just this tip but I mean they got a lot of actually really helpful videos on how trail cameras work how to get the best out of them what some of the differences are between you know certain methods or or models and why certain cameras are designed uh, to work one way versus another and what some of the pros or cons are so they get a lot of really great content to go check out but in terms of the ants specifically you know what the recommendation here would be is if you have permethrin you know the same type of stuff that you use for treating your clothing to keep the ticks off you can spray the tree just beneath the camera and just uh, above the camera basically a full circumference to try and mark that tree so that any ants crawling up The tree would have a level of deterrence that would prevent them from, you know, wanting to crawl up to actually where your camera is. Uh, The other thing that uh, the XS guys have done in certain scenarios, if it's a set and forget it type of a camera, uh, putting some of those little granules, the ant killer type stuff, inside the housing of the trail camera um, can help out as well. I've definitely had cameras that have had ant issues in the past, so those are definitely tips that I'll be utilizing on my own uh, trail cameras this summer also uh, feel like you might be at a little bit bigger risk uh, of the deer seeing the camera if it's not like a, a dark flash or something like that, or if your camera makes a little bit of noise. I'm not typically huge on scent control type stuff, but a couple of scent related things that I'll probably be using more this year just to kind of evaluate. Number one, especially in the summer, it's hot and it just seems like it's, it's a good likelihood that by the time you put cameras up, you're, you're sweating and you got, you know, it just feels like your scent's rolling off of you. So perhaps wearing gloves is something I might do just to kind of, again, cut down a little bit. I'm not going to be able to eliminate the scent that's on the camera, but if I can make it so that the deer start or stop acting skittish within a few days, as opposed to like a week plus, then that would be an advantage. So being able to use gloves to be able to hang those cameras, I think is going to be a pretty easy thing that could probably only help not hurt. And then also after putting those cameras up, spraying it down with just like a, a scent killer type spray, I don't have any sort of data to, to prove that that makes much of a difference, but again, it's one of those things where those bottles are pretty cheap, and for this type of a use, I figure it, it probably can't hurt that much. The other scent-related thing that I'll be testing out this summer, and again, this was kind of a, a byproduct of the discussion with Troy, was to just try in some of these scrape areas using uh, some synthetic scents. In Wisconsin, there's, you can't use bait stations or mineral blocks or things like that in certain counties. It really just depends on where you're at, but you can use, you know, liquid synthetic scents and there's like a, an amount requirement, like it has to be less than a certain number of ounces, which is going to be pretty easy to stay within that limit. So I ended up picking up a few of the bottles of the stuff that Troy uses. The company's called, uh, Buck Fever Synthetics. I I paid for it full price. Uh, I'll test it out in some areas with the the scent. I'll try other areas where it's just kind of the natural scrapes that are set up. Obviously, if it's a mock scrape, then that's one thing you definitely benefit from putting the the scent out. But for areas that are already established, there's already some of that scent out there. So by putting the additional scent out, you're you're effectively just adding potential profiles to it that the deer may want to check out. Um, there's also on the you know the urine side of things that you'd be you know, like pouring into the dirt. There's, I guess, some. Um, I've read things that say that once you're past like a certain time frame, which is not very long, that most of that scent turns into your like basic ammonium and becomes indistinguishable. You know, one species to another, let alone one deer to another. But certain other scents that would show up on like the the licking branches. You know, the preorbital glands type scents. I mean, those should be a little bit higher odds for that type of a thing just because I mean again those scrapes are being used for that use the the deer biologically are using those areas as communication hubs and they're they're using their scent as one of those methods of communication so like I said I'll be testing it out on some spots and leaving it out of others and I should be able to give an update on whether or not that seems to be either helping or hurting or or no difference so I hope this uh trail camera summer strategy video is a little bit different than what you might be used to. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Maybe picked up a, a tip or two or things that might be worth trying. Uh, you know, in addition, if you guys have some really successful strategies that you've been able to employ on areas that might not have, again, the, the typical, you know, private land, mineral block, agriculture type areas that you'd put cameras, I'm definitely open and willing to learn about some of the techniques that have worked for you so feel free to shoot me a message if you have anything that's worked particularly well that i haven't covered in this podcast that'll do it for this episode as always make sure to follow the sportsman's nation on facebook instagram and youtube leave us a review on itunes and if you're looking for additional content subscribe to diy sportsman and with that thanks for listening